like to welcome everyone today to our Tactical Sciences Network podcast. Uh, today, we're going to be speaking with the folks from IR4, Inter the Interregional 4 Project. My name is Marty Draper. I'm the Associate Dean for Research at Kansas State University and, and one of the leads on the Tactical Sciences Network Project. We're joined today by Jerry Barron, the uh, Director of the IR4 Program, and Matt Hengel, the Director of the Western Regional uh, Center of the IR4 Program. So uh, really appreciate having both of you here with us today. Thanks, Marty. It's good to be here, and thanks for bringing, allowing us to talk a little bit about IR4. Yep, thank you. IR4 is, uh, it, it, it's, it's not the most meaningful uh, designation. It's hard to figure out what that name means, but it's really about specialty crops, right? That is correct. I mean, it's really a legacy name. It goes back to the 1960s when the program was first established. There used to be a USDA nomenclature called Interregional Research project. Um, that is gone. They don't use that anymore. In fact, I think the only surviving one is uh, a national potato program and the Ag National Ag Library. Uh, but they switched those names. But because of the recognition, uh, specifically with our stakeholders, the growers of fruits, vegetables, nuts, herbs, and other specialty crops, uh, USDA allowed us to maintain the IR as a dis uh, descriptive name. It, it just is a name. It's nothing more than that. Well, you already kind of touched on it a little bit, but specialty crops, that's that's not the, the most uh, uh, informative name either. What makes a crop a specialty crop? Well, by definition, a specialty crop is really the fruits, vegetables that we have in our diet on a day-to-day -day basis. The ones that the health experts tell us we should eat more of. Uh, you know, I think Probably most of us don't eat enough fruits and vegetables, um, but specialty crop also includes uh, ornamentals, uh, the crops that enhance our environment. Uh, so in a nutshell, they're, they're really the horticultural crops that uh, are high value, uh, but grown on a low acreage. Um, IR4 is also, our mission also expands to what is called minor uses on major crops. So sometimes, you know, in uh, the Midwest or in, in the East, uh, you may have an isolated problem. And, um, you know, the, really there's there's no uh, aspect to get a pest control product approved because it's just not worth it. So it they we uh, support these minor uses on these major crops. And so when you're talking about minor uses, you're talking about pest control products? Pest control products for a crop like soybeans or cotton or corn, uh, that's typically the minor uses. Very small acreage on those major acreage crops. So sometimes I think you're, you're looking at products that are already labeled on, on major crops or major use and how that might be applied to some specialty crop or smaller acreage crop that that the company may not want to go through the process uh, alone to 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 feel that field that registration and and you help them gather the data then yeah and, and that is the traditional model that we've been working in uh since we started which is the companies will go out and they'll provide the investment to develop the supporting data that is required by u.s environmental protection agency to register the uses on the large acreage crops. 
Um, you know, that could be extensive. It, it could be, you know, over $250 million to register a new product uh, in the United States. So it's it's pretty big uh, uh, ticket there. Uh, but there's no real market incentive for a company to go out and register a use on a minor crop or a specialty crop because the sales are very limited uh, because the acreage is so small. I mean, if you look at like a crop, let's say asparagus, um, you know, the acreage is really tiny. You're not going to recoup the investment anytime soon. So USDA established the IR4 project to allow the growers of these specialty crops to have access to safe and effective pest management products. Um, I'll just jump in one other quick thing, Marty, and that is, uh, you, know, you, you gave the traditional model of IR4 adding on um, new uses to an established product that a company has registered for a major crop. Uh, the newer model is that not only we, uh, do we do that, but we also work with companies with their new products when they're first coming to market. Uh, so we'll be doing the specialty crop work and the companies will be uh, co-developing at the same time on the major crops and our data goes into the Environmental Protection Agency at the same time so it gives the growers, the specialty crop growers, access to these products very early in the development process. That's a huge improvement on, on the old model where sometimes we'd see a huge lag from when a product is introduced to the market till when it actually has an expanded use. Yep, absolutely. Um, so. Some of the things that you're looking at are, are efficacy, is it, is it residual, is it, what kinds of things do you look for? Well, our primary focus uh, has been on developing the residue data, the magnitude of the residue studies that are required by EPA. Um, basically, what, what occurs is a researcher will go out and grow a crop the way the farmer uh, typically grows the crop. Uh, we'll make applications of the test pesticide uh, at the appropriate time at near harvest. We'll harvest it. We'll ship it off to one of our analytical labs, and, and Matt's uh, head of the IR4 Western Regional Lab, um, uh, where the compounds are analyzed. Uh, the data all comes back to the IR4 group, and then we submit it to EPA. Uh, that. What I just mentioned is about three years in a nutshell in, in that 15-second uh, description. Uh, but what's all said and done, you know, we'll develop the residue data. Uh, we are seeing the need for more and more efficacy and crop safety data. Um, not only is this being driven by the states, uh, such as the state of California uh, requires this type of data for state registration, other states do the same, uh, but also, uh, you know, the companies, because of liability concerns, are asking for more and more of this data. So IR4 is making somewhat of a transition in developing more of this uh, efficacy and crop safety data. So, so really, I mean, we're talking about a lot of what EPA wants to have is, is safety for the consumer and uh, safety to the environment. I, I remember many years ago in my career, uh, collecting data on on uh, soil residual and effects on the the crops planted afterwards on that site. So there's a lot of different ways that can come in. 
I'm wondering, Matt, when you have a sample come into you for residual testing, what does that look like based on what the what the trial design is? So uh, what we receive is has been outlined in our protocols um, as per the GLPs that we need to follow. Um, so it could be, um, uh, for example, I'm just completing a project on dill. And so I'm, I'm getting fresh dill, I'm getting a dry dill, uh, dill seeds and uh, dill oil. So, uh, you know, fresh dill that's been steam distilled into dill oil. And so uh, each one of those crop fractions will need to be analyzed for the target compounds uh, as specified in our protocol. So in this case, it was uh, cyan tranilopril and uh, there's a metabolite that's associated with that compound that also needs to be analyzed. So we'll receive those various crop fractions. Uh, typically, uh, we'll, we label them as raw agricultural commodities and they'll need to be processed. Uh, basically, we need to homogenize the sample from the field so that the uh the what we receive from the field needs to be representative of that field so when we get it we want to homogenize that sample such that the small aliquot that we need to use for analysis is representative of the whole sample that we received at the field which is representative of the field um, so we'll process that with dry ice and chop it up so that when we weigh out five grams of it, that five grams is representative of that entire field that was, uh, that was applied uh, for the target compound. And then we run it through our, our procedures and analyze it using, um, typically we're using some form of mass spectrometry to analyze these compounds. Oh, Matt, there's so much in that, in that answer I have to unpack. <laughs> so. <laughs> So you mentioned GLP, so that's that's good laboratory practices. It's a protocol that you have that's accepted, that's approved, that's been through testing, and it really reflects the standards that you have to use in all of your testing, right? Yes, yes, that is correct. That is correct. We we have to follow the the, the uh, 860 guidelines um, it's, uh, promulgated in the Federal Register, and um, we 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 have. Uh, as part of the, the GLP, we have a quality assurance unit that is uh, auditing uh, ongoing work. So, for example, they'll go out to the field and they'll audit a uh, field researcher. So when they're making their tank mix and applying uh, these uh, uh, the crop protectant out in the field on the plot, they're making sure that the, the calibrations were followed and the protocol was followed. And then the same thing happens in the laboratory where our quality assurance officers will observe uh, myself or any of the other chemists uh, following our procedures and analyzing these samples. Uh, and then once we've created all that data and then we write uh, our, our summary report, uh, they go back through the data and the, the summary report and they, they audit that for uh, compliance with GLP. And, that's and then also, and oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. And that's how we know it's all good data. Yes, yes, yes. And then ultimately, we, you know, we, 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 you know, we're serving the public, uh, but we're also meeting the needs of, of EPA. So EPA will periodically send out their inspectors for a neutral scheme audit, and they'll pick uh projects that that we've completed or ongoing, and they'll start digging through all of the data and checking our, our SOPs and things of that nature. 
I think it's interesting that you mentioned about metabolites too, because it's, sometimes it's not the compound that was applied, it's what the compound that was applied breaks down to. I was involved in some testing of a fungicide a number of years ago, and there were two or three breakdown products that were really what we were watching much more than the, uh, than the fungicide that went on the crop. That is correct. Yeah, it's it's uh, you you can see a lot of either transformation within the plant or environmental transformation of the uh, the compound, and depending on the, the the toxicity of that metabolite, that kind of dictates whether or not we need to look for it. I think that really is uh, is uh, something that should be a reassurance to the public about how thorough um, the process is before things get approved to be used on on our crops and, and there's a lot of new products out there that are considered reduced risk also so you know old old pesticides versus new pesticides there's a big difference in the chemistry oh in, indeed indeed i i i remember when i first started uh back in the early 90s and we were still looking at a lot of uh, organophosphate based uh insecticides and you know those are those are kind of gone by the way of the, the dodo, and now we're looking at newer, safer chemistries. So um, when I think about um, the, the, the testing that you're doing, uh, in lieu of these products that are being approved, if you had someone that was trying to grow, you mentioned dill, um, what would they do if they didn't have these products? I think that might be a better question for Jerry because he actually has an agri agronomical background and I'm I'm just a, a city kid that works in the lab. <laughs> but, uh, Grind and process guy. <laughs> uh, don't want him to fool you. He knows a lot about the field side, but I'll, I'll go ahead and, t and take it. So, uh, yeah, it, you know, really, you know, pests are indiscriminate. Uh, they don't really care if it's a major crop that's grown on millions of acres or especially a crop that's grown on a handful of acres um, they go out there they damage the crop and if there's not products available um, there'll be crop damage and crop damage not only reduces the availability of food i.e I food waste which is a hot topic right now but it also has some unintended consequences uh, such as secondary uh, disease, secondary rots, uh, some toxins coming out. Uh, uh, did you know that celery has a natural component in it that is uh, expressed when the plant is under stress from pests to fight off insects and diseases? Uh, unfortunately, that natural component isn't exactly the most healthiest thing you want. So uh, if you get some um, old and ratty celery uh, in your refrigerator, um, that's one you want to throw out real quick and not eat. Um, but, you know, p plants do have natural defenses, and sometimes those natural defenses aren't so pretty. Um, so, you know, what, what would happen? I mean, you know, organic farmers who aren't using conventional chemical pesticides are using pesticides. They're, they're a different manner, but they need some pest management control just as the conventional farmers. And you know, a lot of times in, in my teaching, uh, you know, some of the classes, I like to show that the, the 
the difference between organic farmers and conventional farmers have become um, very small. There's a lot of gray area between the two. So you'll see conventional farmers using products that are cleared for organic areas and vice versa. Uh, well, let me, let me back that up. It's not that organic farmers are using chemical pesticides, but they're the same products in, often in, in sometimes. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that a little bit because I think one of the keys that draws some of these uh, tactical sciences programs together is they're really focused on biosecurity, food security, integrated pest management and approaches that that overlap. So when we talk about organic production and we talk about conventional production, those that use pesticides or don't use certain kinds of synthetic pesticides, um, they're still concerned about the pests that are out there and they have to manage them some way. So they integrate their methods, they use clean seed, they minimize residue, they they do all kinds of practices that uh, that try to minimize that. But in the case where they've got pressure, they have to be able to do something or potentially lose their crop. And it's just the kind of product that we're talking about, not necessarily uh, that we're not using any products at all. In fact, I, I, uh, I'm not sure you're aware of Marty, but uh, IR4, um, part of our new integrated solutions program, uh, is designed to specifically serve the needs of uh, the organic farming industry. Uh, you know, provide tools that have been cleared for other crops in the organic market to extend the registrations to other specialty crops. So, uh, you know, we try to help the organic farmers out just as we help the conventional farmers. I think that's a really important point that the product, there are still products that are registered with EPA that are used in organic systems that meet their standards. They're actually going through two levels of approval, one through EPA and one through the organic standards. Absolutely, yep. So um, when we when we look at, at who's doing all of this, we've got a lot of collaboration going on here. We've got EPA, we've, we've heard about USDA, we've heard about universities that are involved. Um, sounds really complicated so how do how do those groups all get on the same page <laughs> um well it, i think that's one of the things that makes ir4 very unique and i mean you just mentioned several of the key stakeholders let me add a few more in there uh, the crop protection companies we need legal access to their products and if they're not going to give us access to their products we can't do our job so it's very critically important that we're we have them in the loop and they're involved in some of our decision making uh, in allowing us to utilize their technologies. Um, we didn't mention anything about our international activities. Uh, about 25% of our research program we do in cooperation with the government of Canada. And, um, you know, so that's an international partner, but we work very closely with them. Uh, we work with other international um, companies or uh, countries. Um, you know, Matt and his group in, in the Western region have to deal with some of the state regulatory uh, organizations. For, for example, California Department of Pesticide Registrations is very much involved with IR4. So, um, you know, a lot of it comes down to communication and a lot of it comes out to uh, transparency and, and, and bringing people into the loop keeping them informed of what we're doing. And, uh, you know, partially the, the, I guess the showcase of our uh, year is our annual priority setting workshop where we typically have 
uh, over 200 people attend, and we, in an open environment, we de develop our research priorities. I just sat down here and wrote on my my, my notes that I the next question I was going to ask you was about prioritization. So mm -hmm. you've got a tremendous number of crops that you're dealing with, and you've only got so much bandwidth. So how do you how do you set a priority on where you're going to focus your efforts in a given year? It's tough. It, re it really is tough, and it's been getting tougher every year. I mean, uh, we used to have resources enough to do about a hundred new studies every year. Uh, because our budget has remained flat for the last decade, the number of studies we can do in any, new studies we can do in any given year is dropping to the mid-60s. So now all of a sudden we've lost, you know, a good 30% uh, of our research capacity and you get into these workshops and you can't answer everyone's questions and uh, you really have to basically say is, you got to come back next year and and uh, fight for it again. Um, you know, let me just take one step backwards, though. Um, you know, as we've been involved in helping um, other countries start up IR4-like programs, one of the key points, key uh, words of advice we've given to to these countries is. You need to let your stakeholders know that this isn't a one-and-done type of deal, that this project will be around for a long time in answering these questions. I think if the stakeholders feel that, yeah, I didn't get my need done this year, but I have a shot for next year, there's a lot more comfort level versus, you know, you're going into a situation and if they don't get it that one year, you know, don't, they don't know when they're going to see it again. So. Uh, you know, we try to reassure people that you know next year is another year and we can get things done. But uh, the fact that we've been around for nearly 60 years, uh, we have a good track record of, of uh, approvals. Um, people tend to be patient, and, and if they don't get it one year, they'll 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 feel comfortable getting in the next. You're usually looking at, at university cooperators that are doing the the research for you. Is that correct? Um, the majority of our people are either with the universities or with USDA Agriculture Research Service. We have about uh, 20 or so field research centers or field farms, and we have five analytical labs. Um, ARS, Agriculture Research Service, um, owns, and I put that air quotes, they own uh, two of the analytical labs and about uh, five of the field research centers, and the rest are associated with land-grant universities. We will use contract research groups when necessary to fill in the blanks because sometimes we just can't get something done at a university-based research farm or, or one of our internal laboratories. Um, the other thing maybe just to bring out is while we are attached to the universities, um, as Matt said before about the federal good laboratory practice uh, uh, regulations, our people have to be specially trained and they have to be compliant with these guidelines. So, you know, several decades ago we moved away from having the typical entomologist in the Department of Entomology uh, doing the field trials for IR4 and went with the idea is we would establish field research centers with dedicated personnel 
at that university that, that their sole focus is doing these residue studies or, or doing some other testing for IR4. Well, has that helped to um, reassure that you'll be able to have faculty that can do it? I know a number of universities are concerned with the, the loss of faculty numbers and, and diminishing uh, breadth of, of, of uh, research capacity. But by committing yourself to certain programs, do you feel like the universities then are saying that's a priority and we need to keep it? Well, I think, I think the locations that host IR4 facilities are very much um, supportive of IR4 and subsidize it uh, to some extent uh, because they know the importance not only to the national IR4 program, but to the local growers. Um, so most host institutions are very supportive of IR4 and, and what we do. So you mentioned something also that, that piqued my interest, uh, Jerry. You commented about the international reach. Mm -hmm. So I'm guessing since you're dealing with a lot of, of residual questions, residue questions, that that could, could have import and export concerns, that we have to have standards that are in that are aligned from country to country with our trading partners? Absolutely. That uh, seems to come up to be one of the highest priorities from our grower stakeholder community of the harmonization of the pesticide registration or residue levels uh, with trading partners. So for example, um, you know, if you have a citrus grower in California, that's trying to export uh, uh, citrus to Japan, they not only have to be concerned about what is the approved, uh, what are the approved products in the United States, but they also have to uh, be concerned is will the government of Japan allow that legally treated citrus to enter the Japanese markets? Um, so one of the things that we've been trying to do um, is to develop the data that's not only required by EPA uh, when we're seeking registration, but also to develop the data that may be required by some of our international trading partners. So that way we go to the lab one time, we make Matt's life a little bit easier, uh, but then we have the required data that we can turn that over to the company and they submit it to you know, whether it be the European Union or Japan or Codex, whatever the case may be, and we get those harmonized um, approvals. So, yeah, I, I had some experience dealing with, with Codex, Codex residue levels with wheat years ago and, and, and a fungicide that all of a sudden they decided to drop the, uh, drop the uh, uh, acceptable residue level in, in the U.S. We had to figure out what we were doing with our with our treatment practices, and it just kind of changes the changes the game for you a little bit right. when you're dealing with those uh, those trading partners. Um, I'm I'm also curious. Um, so when we we think about all these these crops that are out there, the, the the diversity just blows my mind. But I've got lettuce, and I've got spinach, and I've got kale. They're all leafy greens. Um, do we study those together? Do we do them individually? How, how do we how do we work through a situation like that? Does that impact the labeling that results? I think probably one of the largest successes of IR4 over our history um, has been with the establishment 
of crop groups and allowing uh, for legal extrapolations from a small number of similar crops to a larger number of similar crops. So you, you just brought up the leafy greens. And um, you know, right now, if you develop data on head and leaf lettuce, spinach, and celery, you get a, a quite a few crops here, maybe numbering in the uh, 60s or 70s, different number of crops that you can get by developing data. So you've not only made your research very efficient, but you've made it much more efficient for EPA because instead of reviewing 60 data packages, they're only reviewing four data packages and making the extrapolations from that four to the larger amount. Um, over time, to the point where our producers are going to have tools available to them to make sure that food is coming to, to our tables. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, I think there's some crops, uh, I'm going to just go on the limb and say like arugula. I don't think arugula would ever get a priority within the IR4 data development workshop. Uh, but we can develop the data on the other leafy vegetables and arugula, arugula growers have access to, to safe and effective products. And now we always find arugula in our grocery store shelves. Absolutely. Yep. No. It, it's a uh, in not only have we done this in the United States, uh, but we have taken this same concept and have been leading a international group um, to dis establish uh, crop groupings on the international basis. So um, IR4 and our partners in Canada, as well as uh, some other partners in the European Union, have developed uh, some international crop groups. and. Uh, I just heard just yesterday that uh, one of the priorities of Codex Committee of Pesticide Residues is to finalize the last of the crop grouping submissions that we have made. So uh, that's proceeding and uh, we'll have these international crop groups that pretty much match up to the U.S. crop groups. That's, that's progress. That's a, that's a good thing from a trade perspective for sure. Um, We've talked about the selection process. We've talked about uh, the, the testing. Uh, where does the data go? Uh, does all that data go to EPA, or is there someplace else that that it has to be uh, has to be vetted? Well, our process is once the data is developed, once the field reports come into the IR4 Project National Headquarters, once uh, Matt and his colleagues submit their uh, um, their analytical summary reports, we will put together a draft data package. We have multiple levels of internal review, which also includes quality assurance review. But before we submit that to a regulatory authority, we will give it to the company uh, to make sure that they're still aligned with our activities to establish a registration. Um, very rarely they may change their mind, but most cases uh, we have uh, a green light. They'll provide us some additional data and information that is required to supplement the data package, but then it goes off to EPA. 
Um, there are cases when some of the states also want to see the data. Um, there are some cases where EPA has established cooperative relationships uh, with other regulatory authorities to review the data. So they'll ask us to send it to, let's say, the Pest Management Regulatory Authority in Canada. Uh, we'll send some data to them or we'll send data to California Department of Pesticide Registration. Um, but ultimately, it, it really is a quasi-submission to EPA because EPA has the ultimate authority to um, give a thumbs up or thumbs down on the data and to establish the pesticide tolerance. Once the tolerance is established, it is up to the companies to add that registration to their marketing labels. Uh, so IR4 is not really a registrant. Uh, it, the companies are still the registrant. They're still responsible to go out there and to make that change to their um, marketing labels. Um, we are also willing to share our data with others once the use is registered um, in the United States. Um, our feeling is that this is publicly developed data uh, and should be available to anyone uh, as long as the U.S. growers have registration, have, have access to the registration. So uh, that, that's, you know, has afforded us the opportunity to, once again, I don't, I, wanna, I don't want to keep dwelling on this international, but it'll afford us this opportunity to harmonize. I think that's really important, the, the ability to be aligned with our with our allies and trading partners to make sure that uh, um, it's it's really a global question of food security and biosecurity so absolutely so when we're talking about um stakeholders and you've mentioned your stakeholders a number of times and in, in, in different uh maybe commodity groups that seems like those could be pretty fragmented i know a number of years ago i did some work in cucurbits and there's not one cucurbit grower group there's there's a grower group for every market class of, of cucurbits, and I suspect that could be the case in, in other crops too. So how do you help them come to the same agreement on, um, on priorities? Um, that, that's always a challenge. Um, jokingly, I remember a, a fond day when we had at one of our workshops uh, a representative of the California strawberry industry gets up and told a representative of the Pennsylvania strawberry industry, uh, be quiet. Uh, we're, we grow all the strawberries. Uh, your 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 comments don't mean anything. And, and I, I'm saying that tongue in cheek, but I can it, imagine it is, the guy from Florida saying, "Hey, hey, what about us?" Yeah, <laughs> you know, but it, it does become problematic at times. You know, one of the things that uh, we have been able to do is we we have a commodity liaison committee. Uh, it's about a 30-member uh, group that is out there um, really um, assisting IR4 to make sure that, you know, the information does get to the various components of the crops or crop, crop groups. We also have a liaison in every state that is asked to represent the needs of their commodities in that state. So, yeah, maybe Pennsylvania doesn't grow a lot of strawberries, but that liaison in Pennsylvania has that responsibility to make sure that IR4 is fully aware 
of the needs of the Pennsylvania Strawberry Growers Association. I remember a number of years ago in a state that I was working in, uh, one of the priority issues brought forward was mint. I didn't even know mint was grown in the state, but I think that speaks to just how small the acreage can be in some of the crops that you're talking about. So, um, Matt, I want to bring you back into this because you're in California, and by golly, uh, that's the that's a salad bowl out there. You've got every crop imaginable in in trees and and uh, sticking out of the ground. So, um, I, you know, we talked about Florida, we talked about California, we talked about uh, Pennsylvania growing growing uh, specialty crops. Where are specialty crops grown, and and who are the who are the big states in specialty crops? So, uh, well, you mentioned California, and that's usually, you know, from the Western region perspective, that's kind of the crown jewel of, of specialty crops, just because there's hundreds of specialty crops grown just in California. Um, but if you just move up a little north into the Pacific Northwest, into Oregon and Washington, uh, you, there's, there's almost as much variety up in those states as well. Um, certainly a lots of tree fruit. Uh, hops, mint, uh, berry production. Um, so it's 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 really it's it's a pretty uh, wide ranging uh, growing area in the West uh, uh, that can serve obviously the uh, you know the local contingency as well as the national need for fruits, vegetables, and things of that nature. And then if you just think of California and the almond production, where we're pretty much the almond. <laughs> we produce almonds for the world. Um, as far as the, the growing areas uh, within California, obviously the, the Central Valley is, is really the majority of the, the, the ag that, that occurs, but it's not the only place. Uh, we have lots of coastal areas. The, the Monterey uh, region does a lot of coal crops, uh, strawberry production. Um, you go down south into um, uh, the Riverside area, and you have lots of citrus in that, uh, some tree fruits. Uh, and then the southern part of the state in the Imperial Valley, um, which, you know, that, that basically gives us access to fresh, fresh produce year round because even though it could be wintertime and, you know, in the state down south, it's still, uh, the weather's reasonable, it's still reasonably warm. And so we're getting a lot of ag production from the, the southern part of the state. So uh, it's, it's interesting how you can always go to the, the the grocery section in your store and find, you know, fresh fruits and vegetables there that that are actively being grown in the state year round. So it's 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 pretty special here. You know, I, I uh, think about that. We've come, we become spoiled in in part because of the ability to move produce around the country, but but also the imports that come in. You can get raspberries any time of year of the year and. Uh, we've already learned that IR4 has some some influence on on uh, the ability of products to move into the country and meet our standards. So I think that's all that's all some pretty cool stuff. But every state in the country that has a mom and pop pumpkin farm has a specialty crop footprint. Then, right? Oh yeah, for sure, for sure. I mean, and and I didn't even mention you know what goes on in the Southwest in terms of of uh, New Mexico and Arizona. And a lot of the the crops that they can grow down there because it's just warm, just the, the differences in climate that allow us to get access to you know the peppers and things that we can grow down there, and the other uh, uh, the other crops that we can 
that it can take care of during the winter time when we can't do it in the Central Valley because it's, it's cold and it's raining. Well, you know, sometimes when it rains in California. So I'm, I'm kind of curious when you think about a specialty crop and, and uh, Jerry or Matt, whoever wants to take this crazy question, if you're, dry, if you're growing beans, phaseolus, dry beans, for example, dry, growing pinto beans, and you sell them as dry beans or you sell them as canned beans, does that change anything about how they're being uh, considered in a, as a specialty crop? Is that still a spe- is it a specialty crop at all? Well, technically, beans, the dry beans, do not fall into the category of specialty crop. Um, that doesn't mean that we don't do work on them because, as I mentioned before, minor uses on major crop. But uh, yeah, it depends on how it's sold. Uh, in, in some cases, uh, and beans is a incredibly complex crop group. Uh, I I wish I could wrap my arms around it, but it, it's pretty complex. And you throw in some of the cool season pulses too, and you know you think about uh, uh, chickpeas or, or garbanzo beans, and you got them on your salad bar, but they're also sold dry and 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 just used a lot of different ways in 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 our, as a food source. So yeah, yeah. Um, you bring up a good point there that maybe I just want to add in real quick, and that that is because of you know the complexity of some of these crop groups. Our when we're developing data we want to make sure the data that we develop is protective. In other words, when EPA looks at those numbers, they have the worst case scenario that of the highest potential for exposure. Um, and that oftentimes means that uh, on one crop it may be close, but on many other members that we're doing work on, it's not even you know, there's there's an overestimation of the the tolerance. So that's that's a critical point to note that you know, when you're talking about, like, let's say, garbanzo beans and chickpeas, um, our data is probably uh, overestimates the the residues on there. But the worst case scenario would be is we underestimate, and there's higher residues than allowed by the tolerance, and then you have some um, potential. Um, uh, legal actions as well as uh, potential uh, health effects. Clearly the situation we want to try and avoid. Exactly. Um, yeah. So looking here uh, at my notes and thinking about what we might want to talk about, you know, you've got some other crops out there like grapes. Are they considered, are they considered minor use or specialty crops? There's a lot of acres and it's a big industry. Dollars for sure. I guess that's a California question. Uh, Western question in many respects. Yeah, it's 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 kind of hard to to shoehorn grapes into uh, <clears throat> you know a, a minor use or specialty crop just given the, the acreage. Um, you know, I like to look at grapes in California as the way we export water from the state. Um, yeah, <laughs> whether it, whether it's in the form of the grape or or the uh, the fermented form. Um, but yeah, it's 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 it, I guess that's the thing that I've kind of learned over the years is is that you know there's there's kind of some some gray areas whether it's you know the as as Jerry explained earlier the the minor use on a major crop uh, type of scenario um, maybe grapes can kind of fit that mold now because it's just there's so many acres of it but uh, we still we still you know get requests from from various grape whether it's table grapes or 
uh, the wine industry for their needs for, you know, the, obviously the fungicides are usually one of the, the driving factors for that. Uh, but it also could be something on the insecticides um, in terms of uh, maybe it's a fumigation need for you know, packing grapes or, or raisins for shipment elsewhere and things of that nature. So I just gave I just gave all of the grape industry to California, but there's a bunch of states that are mad at me now. And, and uh, uh, I think I heard New York scream. I don't want to shortchange <laughs> New York or any of the wine industry that's in just about every state in the country now. Um, certainly, uh, it's been a fine cottage industry and niche market for for many states to expand their their agricultural footprint. So, um, what have I missed? What's important about IR four? I think when I when I think about it, you know, uh, there's a great overlap between the major crop minor use, um, the specialty crop, the major crops, and it all has to fit together to assure that we've got a safe and sustainable food supply for our country. So anything else that uh, either of you would like to add, Jerry or Matt? I'll throw one in is emerging crops. And as our farms try to diversify and go in new and unique directions of growing new crops that um, potentially, you know, uh, are niche markets for uh, some ethnic um, um, groups. Um, we're there to try to help these crops get up and off the ground. Um, for example, quinoa, um, you know, that's an ancient uh, Indian grain, uh, typically has not been grown in the United States. It's been predominantly grown down in uh, high uh, elevations of Peru. Um, you know, they're trying to grow it now in the United States. And, you know, as the elevation's a little bit lower than um, some of the mountains that's grown, there's more disease pressure. They have uh, greater needs for fungicides. Uh, but the, the, the demand for quinoa is incredible. Uh, wasabi, uh, you know, there's some growth of wasabi in the Pacific Northwest. Not just horseradish that is dyed green, but true wasabi. Um, you know, the, the, the newest and greatest emerging crop, uh, uh, hemp. Uh, we can't go through a day when there's not a question about pesticides on hemp and how can we help them get tools so they can effectively grow the crop. Um, a great example because we've got so many different uses. Is it a CBD? Is it is it uh, fiber? Uh, what is it that we're trying to grow it for? And like that must change some of our tolerance concerns. Oh, absolutely! It's it's literally three crops in one, and we we actually deal with it in that particular matter. Um, we have not been able to legally do or illegally do any work with uh, cannabis because we're federally funded and it's still a classified as a uh, controlled substance, so we can't do it. But there's tremendous pest management needs for uh, hemp and cannabis. Yeah, I think that emerging emerging markets uh, is, is just a, a great point for you to bring up. I appreciate that you, you, uh, you raised it. Because um, really, we're not going to grow our, our um, agricultural options without being able to have a way to address the challenges with those new crops as we try and bring them in. And as I start looking down my list of things, as I was just kind of throwing together a list of what I thought might be specialty crops, 
you know, I got to believe some of those are pretty small acres. How much jicama is grown? Uh, how, you know, um, it's just, uh, it's so diverse. This whole idea, especially crops, is so diverse. And, and uh, you guys and the work that you do are really uh, uh, making it work for our agricultural industry. Thanks. Yeah, when you think minor, you, you think, think of rhubarb. And that we had an ag tour up in the up in Washington, and this fellow pointed to this this I can't remember how many acres it was, but it was like it's less than ten. And he's like, "This is the largest acreage of of rhubarb in in the in the country." And I was like, "Okay." <laughs> I walked into a grocery store in Virginia and saw rhubarb and the price that they were charging, and I thought, "Wait, wait! At my mother's house, there's there's ten hills of rhubarb. I've never paid for rhubarb before." But that's just exactly it. It's not, you know, these crops are not always where you are at. So uh, that's what makes it all work. Yeah. Well, as we uh, as we come to a close here, I want to thank uh, our guests today, Matt Hengel from the Western Region IR4 Laboratory and Jerry Barron, the director of the IR4 program uh, across the country. And uh, I think it's been a great opportunity to chat about the importance of specialty crops and how we manage the the challenges that come in raising those crops uh, from a pest management standpoint, making sure that we have the right tools available to us to assure that we have uh, food security and we're always going to be able to see those crops available to us as as our food crops and as 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 marketable products that we can use in trade. So it's been a great conversation with you both today. I want to thank you for, for joining us. Thank you, Marty. Glad, glad we could join you today. Yep. Thanks for the opportunity, Marty. Appreciate it. This has been our Tactical Sciences Network podcast, chatting with uh, Jerry Barron and Matt Hengel of the IR4, the Interregional 4 project that helps us with specialty crops and their production. <laughs>